20 to 30,000 leagues under the sea, swimming amongst the fishes and lobsters. Sequoia is in here because a whale ate him, but we're here, and that's okay. To my right, I have Amos and Smiling Dave. Let's talk about comics. Today, we're going to do a quick review of Lobster Johnson that was written by Mike Mignola and artisted... Artistried by, you guys remember? Uh, Jason Armstrong. Jason Armstrong. Uh, I would say Jason Alexander. And like you said last yeah. time, it's it's basically Jason Armstrong doing his best Mike Mignola. Absolutely, right? yeah. Which I'm totally fine with. <laughs> yeah, no I want everything in the Mignola verse to look like Mike Mignola. Well, did. and that's what's the problem with Hellboy is that because he writes and uh, illustrates all of it, it takes like 92,000 years for stuff to come out. Right. But before we get into that, we're going to do an icebreaker. We're going to talk a little bit about colloquialisms and then maybe throw in <laughs> some news. Maybe throw in some news that we couldn't fit in to the last episode. Without further ado, let's do some icebreakers. So the question is, who's the loneliest comic book character? Who's the loneliest comic book character? It sounds like you're doing a weird version of uh Amy Mann's cover of One from Magnolia soundtrack. There's Magnolia. A, a Mignola. I'm just trying to keep <laughs> oh, this going, though. So anyways. Uh, one right. is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. So who is the loneliest number that you'll ever I do? I just came up with the question. I actually don't know. But I don't think you can say Wolverine. No, I mean he's been he's been banging women for like two hundred plus years. He's not lonely, but he never let anyone in. Maybe I was about to say to me, Tiny Stark is the loneliest character because of the iron shell he puts around his feelings. Exactly. Mm. He's got that axe though. Axe body. The spray. Axe body spray that <laughs> secretes from inside the suit whenever it starts to get a little dicey. <laughs> this is all true. <clears throat> so well, I mean, but that's not even true either because I mean he's definitely fallen in love with other characters over the years. He's been in love with the Wasp. He's yeah, they been always in love get with killed. Black Widow. What about Archie? He's been going after the same broad forever. Broad. She doesn't care. I think Carly. Or two, or I don't even know. Maybe maybe Jug. Maybe it was Jughead all along that he really needed. No, all the Jughead needed was some burgers. Yeah. So he's never. Maybe he's lonely. the loneliest, unless burgers fill that void for him. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have a, a void. He's he's totally comfortable. He's got a burger shaped hole in his heart filled Jughead, three times daily. <laughs> Jughead is like the Buddha. He's very self-actualized and yeah. full of burgers. Amos. I'm the loneliest character. No. <laughs> Give me an answer. One a one-word answer, no explanation. Watcher. Yeah, seems pretty lonely. All he does is watch. That's a lonely life. Until he got shot in the head. Galactus. That's pretty lonely. He's kind of like the Jughead of the Marvel Universe. Though. <laughs> so. if, if plants, if plants yeah. were burgers. <laughs> that would have been a good iceberg question. Who's the Jughead of the Marvel Universe? Well, we solved it. Yeah. We can't ask that one now because we, we arrived at <laughs> that conclusion. We did a Jeopardy with that one. 
Doctor Doom is probably pretty fucking lonely. All he probably ever wanted was something like Reed had. Stretchy arms? Let's talk about colloquials, colloquialisms, colloquialisms. Let's talk about colloquialisms. Hey, colloquialisms, comma, let's have a talk. <laughs> Whew. Guys, I'm going to I'm going to ask each of you a few colloquialisms. You'll get there eventually. And you need to let me know where they came from given your best Understand total lack of information. Total lack of information, and how much you understand about history and being a human being. Now, it's the twist on this that you're just going to ask us a bunch of Canadian colloquialisms to which we have no reference for nope. whatsoever. I am not going to make these up. <laughs> the moose is plugging the ice hole. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> I don't know what that one means. This is an easy one, guys. <clears throat> Beat around the bush. We have to just talk about what it means? Just give me your best guess. When do you think that this would be used? Uh, potentially in, in hunting, where they would, would beat uh, patches of, of foliage to get the birds to fly out of it before they shoot them. That is exactly what it is. One point to David, smiling Dave, for beating around the bush. <laughs> All right, Amos, this is your chance to tie it up. Best foot forward. Do I need a buzzer? <laughs> Do I have a chance to steal this? Like in the da, 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 How does this work? Da, 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 da. That's Mega Man. And they sat there and did Mega Man sounds for 20 minutes. Alright. Barnett. What was the thing? Best foot four? Probably came from Mega Man. Definitely came from Mega Man. Um, I've got two guesses, but I think they kind of are in from the same vein. My guess is that it has to do with some sort of performance, so it's probably either like stepping onto a stage with your best foot forward so that you can show the best part of your, your person to the audience, um, or it's your strongest foot when doing something like tightrope walking or something along those lines. Do you have the answers? Yes, all these yes I do. All so right. it's, a, it's a good guess, and it's close. This actually comes from um, vain male models from the 1800s, which I didn't even know there were male what? models. Dandies, if you will. Yeah, and that, that's exactly <laughs> what it says. Um, in the late 18th century, the period of the dandy, which I don't even know what it means, was uh, <laughs> metrosexual. The dandy period. Their desire to attract people's attention and admiration took strange and elaborate forms, at one point believing that one leg differed in shape you figure out which of your two legs were was the dandy one, and you would always put that one in front of the undandy foot. Well, that's weird as shit. Yeah, super weird. <laughs> Before we get into a review of Lobster Johnson, let's talk a little bit about some news that we weren't able to get to last week that came out of Comic-Con or post-Comic-Con. The first is... Colloquial Comic-Con? Colloquial... Oh, man, I can't say that. <laughs> Colloquial Comic-Con. Colloquial. Colloquial. Nope. Colloquial. <laughs> there you go, that was it. Colloquial. That's the word. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Let's quickly talk about some announcements that were made post-Comic-Con that we weren't able to get into. 
both are Marvel properties. The first one is Spider-Man Homecoming has announced that the Vulture is going to be the bad guy, which is cool. Yeah, very cool. Who's playing him again? Sorry. Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton is going to be playing him. I'm pretty him. sure that's confirmed at this point. I know that I, when I first read it, it was as a rumor, but I think they've confirmed it. I could be wrong, but... Do you think... How do you think that came about? Do you think that the people were like, well, who's going to play Vulture? And someone, like, jokingly was like, well, obviously Birdman. Yeah. And then they were like... Well, yeah, actually, that's a that's a really good idea. Well, you have to think too. Vulture uh, as a as a character is an older character, and I can't believe that Michael Keaton now qualifies in real life as an older character. But I mean, he is he's up there. He's he's advancing in, in years, uh, and he certainly f- looks and fits the part. And I mean, as, as a fantastic actor, uh, could very easily play you know a, a washed up criminal like the Vulture. So. Um, I'm extremely excited about it, and it's being billed as a freaks and geeks kind of uh, meets superheroes, and that's something that Sequoia and I have talked about at length, is that Marvel's done a really good job of creating genre films within the genre, right? The genre is superhero films, but they do things like crime heist movies, which was Ant-Man, right? Uh, so that it's not just all Avengers, is like the true comic book movie they do, right? Uh, but everything else is, you know... Uh, there's a war film with Captain America. You know, yeah, Doctor right. Strange is looking like uh, magic inception stuff like that. I mean, Doctor Strange is looking like here are some special effects. That's all I, I can know. tell from the trailer. It, it looks incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hope it's awesome. I, I don't. I'm not saying the trailer looks bad. Just that the trailer is mostly New York warping him on itself. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, while he looks through his own with, hand. with Spider-Man, you know, they're doing a, a high school film. Yeah. Um, and they, they've changed some elements up, but you know it's it's being billed kind of as a freaks and geeks meets superhero, and I'm I'm way on board with that. Yeah, Absolutely. that's great because I mean you know you know superhero comics is kind of a genre, but you can do it in so many different ways. So why can't you do the movies in lots of different ways? Right. Yeah, because I don't want them all to be like Iron Man or Avengers. Mm-hmm. But the ones I like the most are you know Guardians of the Galaxy, Deadpool, Ant Man, Ant Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are the ones that aren't trying to be a comic book movie they're a like you said a specific type of movie that is wrapped in a in a comic burrito yep new more news what is, a gross sounding burrito that would be it's a bunch of comic books that have been rolled up and filled with cheese oh that actually sounds pretty good I love cheese do you like eating paper <laughs> I do like um ice cream cones and those are made out of paper yep the cake ones anyway Kate loves those things yeah you know that what you didn't know that, right? What? <laughs> That's a major fact. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're just going to move on from that, Amos. We'll let you explore that internally. I'm going to start eating paper, but it doesn't taste like an ice cream cone. <laughs> they've, uh, they've also announced some new casting for uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Dose. Dose. Uh, it's, what is it, Volume 2 is what they're calling it? Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. At least it's not mixtape too. Part part do. Although you know, as having one of the best soundtracks of recent years, I truly hope they continue that. That James Gunn is like, hey, you know, let's uh, let's keep this theme going because you know I would love to have another soundtrack because I think that was one of the greatest pieces of that last film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the soundtrack selection is so on point, and uh, I I think that you know the new comic or not the new comic but the new Comic Con. Uh, announcements as far as some of the stuff that's happening. They showed a, a clip apparently that was of uh, Rocket and Yandu breaking out of Ravager prison and rescuing Groot who had been given baby Groot. Who's still baby? Who's still baby, yeah. but he has a Ravager costume on. That was the clip, essentially. It was the two of them 
rescuing baby Groot from the Ravagers who wanted to eat him but decided not to because he's too adorable. <laughs> but they gave him a little Ravager suit, which is something I have to see for myself before that I die. Great. I, I can only imagine how many toys are going to be made because of this. Yeah. And they announced uh, Kurt Russell is joining the cast as uh, Star-Lord's father, as the character Ego, who in the books is a, is a planetoid, which is a strange thing, but apparently he's going to be a man. So or, he was never a planet? What? In... So I wonder, in the movie... Was he never a planet? Yeah. Oh, we he, don't know. We have no he's idea. He's just Ego the Living and not Ego the Living Planet. I feel like they're probably not going to try to write in a this element person. of, oh yeah, I used to be a planet, no big deal. They're probably just going to make him a guy. They've got it. No, they're going to mix it in somehow. Hmm. He'll have a perfectly spherical head. <laughs> He'll have small moons that follow him around. It's a yes. He's got a large gravitational well. Uh, you know, there's that's his pickup line. That's how he got. I just imagine small versions of Bob Key Moon following him around. That's right, a very yeah. weird image. I'm just imagining mini Kurt Russells, just like rotating, moving, around, rotating him. around him. When I was uh, when I was in kindergarten, we tried to do this play for our parents where we were the solar system. And so the kid who was the sun had a really easy job. He just spun around. And then the kid who was Earth wasn't too hard. He had to spin around and then rotate around the, you know. Mm -hmm. But then the kid who was the moon had to be like a gymnast. Because, (laughs) you know, they were doing so much stuff. They were, you know, revolving revolving around the Earth kid while rotating. And then also following the Earth kids. And I was sitting there just going, man. And the craziest thing about the moon is that it's in geosynchronous orbit with you. Yeah. So you always be facing... That's true. Yeah. I don't know if we got that element into it or not. Well, if they didn't, then I was your dad. I would have been really disappointed. If my dad has ever heard or said the word geosynchronous, I will commit suicide. <laughs> because I'm that sure he's never heard or said that <laughs> word. Yeah, I, I think the Kurt Russell selecting is great for one thing, because Kurt Russell's amazing. So having him in the film just uh, by hook or crook in either direction, I think, is is a fantastic... Addition. Uh, they've also announced that Stallone will be joining the cast as a. You, I believe you. He plays a planet. <laughs> well, he's. I'm a planet. I am the planet. He's, he's still that big. I am Jupiter. That guy is still huge, man. Isn't he kind of short? Yeah, he's not a tall actor at all. Not a tall man. Yeah, not a tall man. All right, let's reel this in. That's a good, and, good and do the lobster Johnson. Reel this in like a no. No one fishes for lobsters. Never mind. They 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 uh, trap them yeah. in, in in cages. It'd be pretty weird if you were fishing. And you reeled something in, and it's a lobster on the end of the. He's just holding on like I've I've come here to pinch y'all, <laughs> and then he pinches your face. And also, he can talk, and that's the accent they have. That sort of transatlantic Cary Grant. That's how every lobster talks. Hey there, fella! I've come to pinch ya. <laughs> Let me say those cheeks. Hey there, Friday. Let's talk a little bit about Lobster Johnson. Volume one is called The Iron Prometheus. So the story is Mike Magnolia Mig. So the story is by Mike. Mike Mignola. Oh, that's a Mike name. Mignola. That's a good last name, one that I would have no problems pronouncing if I chose to pronounce it. It's myself. a Lobster Johnson, Mike Mignola. Art is by um, Jason Armstrong. Jason Armstrong. <laughs> Colors are by Dave Stewart. No, I'm not going to do it anymore. And letters are by Clem <laughs> Robbins. Clem. I like an Italian guy saying the name Clem. Hey, Clem, I can't wait to read your book. Wait, they all they slowly give Jamaica in the end. So, Amos, tell us a little bit why you chose this to be your 
um, funny story <laughs> that that we want to read. I chose this because I thought it was something else. I am when I say I'm a big Mignola verse fan, I mean that I like the books I've read, and it has been a little while. I'm way behind on Hellboy and BPRD and all that stuff, but I, I like the stuff I've read a lot. Problem is, I read a lot of that stuff like 15 years ago, so. I when when it came my turn to say hey this is what we're gonna read for our for our little podcast here um, I was thinking of a different book I was thinking of the Amazing Screw on Head which is one of my favorite things ever it's just a one shot that Mike Mignola did about a semi robotic head that is disembodied and bounces around until it jumps in a body and screws itself in much like a corkscrew. And it's very funny. Anyway, Lobster Johnson is a different character, who I also like, and I had read him... In BPRD. In BPRD and a couple Hellboy issues. He shows up in various capacities. But I had not read his own title. I had not read Iron Prometheus before. If I had, I probably would have remembered that it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm glad you bring that up, because (laughs) what I want to do is talk a little bit about the character. Sure. And... And kind of what the character, like what the character plays in this universe, because it's it's interesting. The book was fun to read, but very hard to follow for me. Right. Uh, I liked things I liked about the book is I liked how Yetis live <laughs> next to electronic robots, next to like just like weird weird stuff. This yeah. is just a weird world that has no rules as to what lives where. And well, how much how much Hellboy have you read? So I'm familiar with Hellboy from some one-shots. Mm-hmm. I have not read like the full universe. I've yeah. seen the movies. I've watched like the, the cartoons that are based on the comic books. So I'm aware of what the universe has in it, but not really why it's there. Right. Well, Hellboy's universe and Mike Mignola's universities created for these characters to live in is very and especially their specific world right the 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 dealings that they find them, themselves inside of quite often is one of the occult is absolutely real no questions asked um, and because the occult is real basically anything supernatural is not off limits right and it there's not really aliens per se so much as it's all about ancient like cthulhu lovecraftian kind of horrors and things um, and but so, told in a really fun, wacky way. Exactly, <laughs> um, and you know, and like Lobster Johnson is is basically like uh, you know, serial detective uh, novels, comics, or or you know, pictures from from the '30s and '40s, right? Uh, but it still deals with those occult things. Uh, so it's it's got the same universe as Hellboy, but it's told kind of differently because Lobster is a very much a different character than Hellboy. And I think to your point that like robots exist and like advanced robotics exist in the 30s, which is when this takes place, um, or 40s rather, uh, right next to Yetis and the living embodiment of Genghis Khan. You know those kinds of things are. You're right. It's at first glance like I have no. This makes no sense. But once you've kind of immersed yourself and gotten used to what Mignola writes, like oh, this is this. Of course, this happens. Yeah, Mike Mignola's bad guys are always Nazi occultists or Rasputin's ghost. Or Genghis Khan. Or Genghis Khan. It's like Russians in 80s, uh, in movies from the 80s. I'm I'm in. Let's do it. Yeah, they were all ghosts. (laughs) Lobster Johnson reminds me of Batman 
and Indiana Jones being the same person. Like, that's how I read this whole book, mm-hmm. is that... And maybe, like, the Phantom thrown in there somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. same, same kind of thing. The spirit. Shadow. Yeah. 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 All, all, all of it. <laughs> it's neat. So he has kind of, like, a little gang in which he's the leader of, and when he's fighting, he, he obviously has no problems killing bad guys. No, and that's kind of one of the interesting things about him, is he is in this sort of, you know, the Mignola stuff is a little lighter touch than, than most, like, superhero comics, but Lobster Johnson is this weird character who, he, you don't see it much in this volume, but he talks like this caricature of a 30s superhero might talk. He's big on proclamations yep. and sticking his finger in the air and, you know, telling, telling the bad guys what for. But he also murders the shit out of them. He sure so does. it's kind of a funny combination. And he seems a little gratuitous in his murder. Sometimes I'm like, you didn't have to kill that dude. He also, you know, he has his calling card where he stamps his, he like burns the lobster claw yeah, into, their, into their face. And sometimes he does that to people he didn't even kill. Face the claw of justice. Yeah, you can imagine him saying that before he just goes way overboard on his murders. Well, his world is not our world, right? Right. It's gratuitous <laughs> for our world to do that kind of shit to a person, but you have no idea if they're going to come back as a baboon demon, so you kind of have to make sure. <laughs> make sure they're dead. Listen, he's fought one too many Nazi baboon demons to, to take any chances. He double taps he in this case. <laughs> there's one point in the first... Um, first comic where he just yells here is the claw as yeah. he's shooting an Uzi and killing a bunch of people yeah. <laughs> he's wacky in his violence um, so I, I'll be honest I had a lot of trouble actually falling, following the plot of this so I'm going to rely on Amos to kind of bring us through this um, arc so to speak so it starts with a man in a robot suit being attacked by a gorilla in an apartment. You know, pretty standard. Yeah, okay, so the the overall arc of this one, there's this guy, I believe his name is Jim or Jack, I don't remember. He's, he's there's not much to he's it at this point. Yeah, he's, he's this guy, he works for this doctor who's sort of a mad scientist character, um, and the doctor has been working on this suit of armor that looks very much like a like the original Iron Man kind of suit. Mm. Absolutely. And it has these powers imbued in it and uh, there are evil forces that want it. So that's why this giant yeti creature attacks him. Uh, and then at, as the yeti creature is attacking this guy, Lobster Johnson shows up and he kicks the yeti demon's ass and stamps it with his lobster claw. As he is wont to do, and then he pretty much takes this guy and introduces him introduces him to his his Crew. old posse, yeah, who are sort of just a bunch of sort of generic '30s tough guys. Uh, they're very they're very sort of New York '30s A team, and he he's both their Hannibal and their B.A. Baracus. Um, pretty much, yeah. And really, I mean, you could sum up the whole plot of this volume as. They fight a bunch of random bad guys and the Genghis Khan type dude, his name I always forget, Menmen Sa, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the problem with this, I think, with this five issue arc, is it throws you into the middle of everything. It doesn't introduce you to who these characters are, 
I think it's definitely meant for somebody who has read a lot of BPRD, or BPRD, well, men size and BPRD is right. a villain as well. Right. And the Nazis are assumed with any of these books. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, no, there are Nazis. Mignola has Nazis in everything. Not in Amazing Scrum Head because the Nazis didn't exist yet. But I'm surprised they didn't try to figure out a way. There were probably Hessians that did something. The main clue that was in this was a like a, a golden necklace as well that we're introduced to that Lobster Man. It's a, it's a sign of that that group of. of of, I don't know, not occultists, but it's. I guess it would be occultists because they worshipped yeah. that those those individuals. All bad guys in Mignola are occultists and to some degree. Yeah, because that's you know that's that's what he mines everything from is uh, is weird um, occult history of random Eastern European countries. Yeah. And so this necklace leads them to I guess a bad guy's lair in comic two. So Jim the robot. And Lobster Boy go to the bad guy's lair and fight another giant robot um, who is definitely got something to do with Hitler because there's another guy there who has the Nazi symbol branded into his hand. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of swastikas. Yeah. Yep. Lots of swastikas. Again, a lot of Nazis. So right. That makes sense. Hey, we got a lot of Nazis. And then we're introduced to the main bad guy in some mystical world that Lobster Johnson is sent to as he's fighting this guy. And I don't know if it's because of the drugs that are in the room. Well, so Lobster isn't in this. It's Mike or Jim or whatever the hell. Is that who is? Yeah, Jim basically falls into a trap that puts him into kind of a frozen world. And there he meets uh, the doctor and the doctor's daughter who've been taken by Mundensa or whatever his name is. And that guy controls snakes, which is kind of neat. Yeah. <laughs> and all sorts of other evil lizard things. He's very uh, 1930s Chinese. He's got, like, the long facial hair and the bald head. Mm-hmm. And very very menacing looking. Cool character. The art in general I thought was pretty fun. And for the most part, pretty easy to follow. Though I did have problems figuring out what character did what. Sometimes I have to reread it and be like, wait, is this is this Robot Jim or is this someone else? Right. Um, I still enjoyed it, though. Yeah, that's the... I think the trick with this one... It, it's not even... It's not even important what the plot is to these five issues because it's just bam, 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 bam. It just goes all over the place. Yeah. Uh, it's one set piece to another, basically. There's yeah. very little exposition between the actual fights and set pieces. Yeah, and, and not enough. I, I think it would be way stronger. Again, I, I think it was written for people who are more familiar with the character, mm-hmm. who've read plenty of BPRD. Uh, if you haven't and you're going into this, it's going to be like, well, who the fuck is this guy? Uh, and you, you also don't really get enough of Lobster Johnson being his weird self. He just yeah. kind of... No, I almost feel like that this comic book wasn't like Lobster Johnson was just used as a crutch to introduce this story about the robot. Yeah, he he is kind of an ancillary character in his own comic book, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so the short and sweet of this story is that um, we find out that everyone's after this robot suit because they think it's all powerful, but it ends up that the character robot Jim is really the whole time been the power behind this suit 
Well, the suit has the fork, which is something the doctor created that basically, and that's why it's called the Iron Prometheus, is that the fork was something that was able to steal power of the gods or the ancient people, essentially. Yeah. Um, and in harnessing that for an extended period of time, it, it, it comes to a point where after battling one of the villains' versions of the suit, right, it comes to pass that Jim is told by the doctor kind of in a nether realm, like an in-between world, as he's dying and his consciousness is fading, you know, hey, the you you have now become this thing, right? You are now imbued with this power. You're a being much greater than you were. And it's as he begins to die, you know, the the fork has lent some of that energy to him. And the fork is still very powerful because it's still something that they still continue to chase toward the end of the book. Um, but Jim kind of transcends just before his death, and he uses his last bit of transcendence to basically wipe out all of the uh, the scientists and things that uh, the the villain has working for him to create new new versions of the suit, which yeah. basically causes the, the the villain to slink and shrink kind of out of the of the the picture there. Uh, so he's ultimately responsible for for doing a lot of the work in this book. Um, Specifically, because he's able to defeat a lot of the major baddies uh, after kind of transcending, uh, the fork is still up for grabs at that point, and everybody's still kind of vying for it. And that's why you see the factions coming in on this: the Nazis, um, the the I guess they're Mongolians because they're they were followers of Genghis Khan. They they talk about it being the greatest empire that ever lived and ever will be, or whatever. Um, and then, of course, Lobster Johnson, whose major uh, stake in all this is simply keeping the fork from both of these parties who will use it for disastrous use. So let's kind of talk about parts of the book that we either really liked or really didn't like since kind of doing a begin-to-end review is kind of difficult. Yeah, it's it's a little all over the place. And like I mentioned earlier with the set pieces, it just moves from one to the other. And it moves quick that way. You know, you do get through the book pretty quickly. Um, but if you break it down to brass tacks, it's we're introduced to a power suit. Right, and we believe that the person in the power suit and the power suit itself are the MacGuffin. At that point, uh, we then find out that there are two different parties vying for it: the Nazis and the um, the Chinese wizards, or whatever they are. What, what should we call them? I mean, like, what are the? I mean, there's probably a name. I don't want to call them the Chinese wizards. Okay. I want to start a band now called the Chinese wizards. So the Chinese wizards um, basically are also after this thing, and then we learn what they're really after, and that's the fork. Uh, so uh, we get to a spot where Lobster Johnson is trying to keep the fork from falling into the hands. They capture Jim with the fork attached to him. Um, he manages to, with his dying breath, defeat things, uh, uh, defeat the, the evil machinations of the Chinese wizards. Uh, the Nazis are on the, the, on the slide moving into this warehouse laboratory to take possession of the fork, and then Lobster Johnson shows up. Uh, and then he gets into it with the Nazis who then try to use um, technology to basically nuclear or atomic technology to destroy New York City. Um, and all, all that, that's, that's basically it. We find out that the fork is the real thing they're after, and at the very end of the story, uh, Lobster Johnson gets branded by the Chinese wizards and basically set, sets us up for what's going to come after this as him being a potential pawn or puppet of the Chinese wizards. So it leads into probably whatever comes next. Um, and I'll probably continue to read it because I, that intrigues me enough to move on. It's a very simple story that gets extremely lost and caught up in Mike Magnola's world. 
and clutter. Yeah, I don't think that I would recommend this to anyone who isn't familiar with his work. Like, at no point was I like, oh, this guy, yeah, I understand who he is. And that happens in Marvel, too, so it's not like a, a huge kick. Like, it's, it's hard to pick up an X-Men book now without knowing a little bit about the characters and read it. Right. So, I, that's why it's going to be difficult for me to rate this, really, because I'm going to rate it low only because I don't really know the characters very well. But I think that... All conflicts should stand on their own, not on what came before or after them. And even, really with this one, even if you are that familiar with Hellboy and BPRD, it's still going to be kind of a mess. Because I, I think it is kind of a mess. I mean, it's it's just so many things crammed into five issues. Like, you know, in the first issue, you're introduced to, like, four bad guys, and you're like, how are they connected? Yeah. And, and these aren't people who would be explained in... If you if you had read BPRD, except for Menman Sa yeah. or whatever his name is, so yeah, well, I don't think it's the best. Okay, well before we get into putting this on the list, does anyone want to talk about maybe one scene in the book that pops out to them as being a very strong or very weak scene? That kind of like what one part of this book really captures the essence of the first volume uh, for me I probably I, I really like the scene with uh, Jim struggling against the it's not a homunculus it's whatever machination that the, the Chinese wizards have crafted it's their version of the suit essentially um, I like that scene a lot because it starts with him talking to the doctor's brain which is so Mignola uh, which is great and then it ends with their battle and ultimately the brain, the floating brain having a bullet put in it and popping like a little balloon, which I thought was great. That was exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Is that I think that this, this, whole vo- this whole volume, this whole story is encapsulated and described perfectly by the scene in which the brain is shot in the head and then it, it shot in the brain and then kind of turns into a deflated balloon on the flo- on the bottom of this tank right. as um, Jim is kind of like crying to the sky. Uh, uh, it was pretty... It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You can tell that it's kind of... It's old school sci-fi, but it's telling like a, a complicated story. And right. I think that's what that whole scene shows you. Yeah. Uh, I really also like uh, Lobster stopping the Nazis from uh, atomic bombing the uh, the city of New York. The whole sequence where he swims deep underwater, has the battle underwater, like he whole time holding his breath, fighting. Fighting a Nazi with a giant swastika on his chest, yeah. while the bomb also had a giant swastika on oh, it. Oh, of course, yeah. They're, the Nazis in Mignola verse are, oh, they really Nazi. want you to know who they are. Because they all have swastikas all over themselves. The guy he fights in the water reminds me of the guy Indiana Jones fights on the landing pad in yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark with his shirt all open and like punching the shit out of him. Just like a huge uh, Hessian tough man that's like here to you know to beat ass. Like I was enlisted by Nazis to come kill you, and he's apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger now. Uh, <laughs> I, I was enlisted by the Nazis to kill you, uh, Indiana. But uh, I like that Jones. scene a lot too. I like, I like how he ultimately takes care of the uh, of the suffering and all of its its inhabitants. The art was really good. Yeah, the art is definitely my favorite thing. It's it's kind of like Mignola light. Yeah, so yeah, I really like the art, and I like to see Mignola's characters 
done in different ways. So that's that's one of my favorite things about. Also, all the occult stuff is great because it's so yeah. cartoony. Yeah, and uh, I, I I do like the art in this better than I like it in BPRD because I think my biggest thing with the early BPRD, especially with most of the stuff that I read early on, uh, like Plague of Frogs. The, the original kind of arc that they did with that was that the art was not Mignola and it was tough for me to feel that world out and so I like that this is kind of aping that style good so I don't want to say that this book was bad but I'm going to rank it low so let's talk a little bit about where we want to put this on our list well, it's better in Civil War so <laughs> I would put it right above Civil War because I don't actually think it's too much better and hear me out. Boo. Civil War, boo this man, <laughs> had a a story arc that was much easier for me to explain. Yeah. Way, way more complicated. Sure. Civil War is. So what do we have above Civil War? Profit, which I didn't read. So. You didn't read Prophet. No. This is actually strangely comparable to Prophet because mm-hmm. Prophet was pretty convoluted as well. It is. Both so. are five issues, basically. Both move pretty quickly. Um, I do think that if Prophet had been about the same characters for five issues, it would be the better, the better book. Uh, but this is a Lobster Johnson is a little bit more standalone than Prophet because Prophet you basically have to keep reading to get much out of it. All right, I'll put it above. I'll, I'll put it above problem. Even though I think I enjoyed it more, I agree. Art was better than this too. I don't. I don't agree with that. You're uh, wrong, buddy. But <laughs> says the guy who doesn't know what the art looks like. <laughs> uh, but it was it was a easier it was easier to read than profit. I I read profit two or three times. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I'll give that to you. So that, that's where we're putting it. Where no, is that on the no list? No bug vagina or space crack, though, so it didn't have that going for it. Yeah. So my next question before the end of the podcast is, what band or what song should be the opening or part of Lobster Johnson? The theme song to Benny Hill would probably be in this. Yakety sax. <laughs> Like at one point when Lobster Johnson is chasing a Yeti who's chasing the robot who's chasing the, the dragon. <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> there were no one with comically large boobs that like stumble on. Oh, that, that kind of boob. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not like a boob. Not, not like, breasts, but like you're an idiot. That kind of move. Uh, you're boob. I was talking about big boobs. Oh, you yeah, actually were talking about is was famous oh, for right. having cross dress. But you're right, the Benny Hill was in fact a big boob. Yes. Also. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys have much more serious answers, so what do you got? Uh yeah, I would do Witchcraft by Frank Sinatra. <laughs> because I mean, you know, the, the title and, and kind of what he's talking about is I mean, he's obviously not talking about the occult, he's talking about being, you know, seduced by a woman. Or seducing a woman, but uh, you know it's it's kind of very fitting. You know, it's it's relevant to the time period, and uh, I really enjoy the juxtaposition of the really dark stuff against the uh, the more lighthearted big band Frank Sinatra kind of thing. Well, All right, everyone, we enjoyed reviewing and talking and bullshitting with you as we always do. Next week, Sequoia will be back, so there will be more content. Until then, 
Enjoy your lives alone. I thought you were going to say enjoy your lies, which I guess for most people is their life, because that's pretty much how I live. I was going to actually loop this back to the beginning of the podcast and said, <laughs> include, <laughs> and say, enjoy your lonely lives, just like the watch does, with a bullet in his head. All right, guys, love you, bye.